name is Scott McCormick, and I'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the, of the division Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, church, it is good to be with you this morning and to come to the Word of God. I want you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat backs there in front of you or underneath. We'd love for you to follow along as we're in the book of Luke. Before we get to it this morning, I would venture to say that most people here in the church have received a package from Amazon. Is that fair to say? Man, we live in an age of expediency and ease. Even here in Valley Center, shockingly, people who lived in larger metropolitan areas have been experiencing this for years, so I've heard. But just recently, if you've ordered something on Amazon, you might have had the opportunity to select that, um, you know, it can get here by tonight. Have you seen that? I mean, we live over by the high school. I've been shocked when they're just like, I put in an order and they're like, would you like to have it between, you know, 7 and 10 p.m.? I'm like, yes, please, you know? Half the time it makes it there, right? You know, between that time. But even to get something the very next morning. I mean, I was talking with our youngest daughter, and she was looking to order something. And when she saw that it was going to take two days to get here, she was like, oh, oh, I got to wait till Saturday? I'm like, slow your roll. Like, I mean, we had to wait a long time to get something like, like that, you know? And... Uh, but one of the things that Amazon does is that when you put in an order, you get that email that says, you know, we, we received your order, and then you'll get a second email, which typically says, your package is on its way, right? And typically, it'll say, your package is on its way, and here's when you will receive it. So there's anticipation. Now, if it doesn't show up when they said it was supposed to be there, then we start getting a little frustrated, and we check the tracking, where is it? We want to we wanna find it. Um, We've been very conditioned for this whole ease and expediency of when somebody says you're going to get something, that it's going to arrive and it's going to arrive soon. Well, as we come to the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that we have to understand is that the people, historically and in theological context, the people, the Jewish people in particular, have been waiting a long time for God to fulfill an order, if you will. In Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, we read these words. I want you to look with me <clears throat> here at Malachi chapter 5, or chapter 4, verses four, 5 through 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter, what? Destruction. These are the last verses that you find in the Old Testament. And they're a promise that the day of the Lord is going to come. 
And if you know the other Old Testament prophecies that refer to the day of the Lord, that's a prophecy predicting the Messiah, the deliverer, the one who will be the offspring of Abraham, who will bring about deliverance and salvation for the people of God. God made a promise to Abraham that through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the day of the Lord is supposed to be the culmination of that process. And God says, before that day comes, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah, not the actual prophet, but one like Elijah is going to come. He's going to prepare the way for this coming Messiah. Now, when these words were written, they were written 400 years before the events that we're about to read this morning in Luke's gospel, okay? So, for 400 years, God had made a promise. The day of the Lord is coming. I'm going to send someone who's going who's to make the way of the one who's coming known, who's going to prepare you for my, my coming. And then for 400 years, there was what? Silence. Now, I don't know about you, but if Amazon said, um, your package is on the way, <clears throat> And it didn't say that it was going to be 400 years till I got it. It just said the package is on the way. After a little bit of time, you're going to start getting anxious, right? When's it coming? When's it coming? When's it coming? After about the hundredth year, you're going to begin thinking, maybe it's not coming. I want to put this all in perspective for you on how long this is. I want to show you a picture of something. Guys, you can put it at that picture up on the screen. This is a picture of a rock. Um, let's see if it comes up here. Yeah. Anybody know what this rock is? Hey, somebody got it. This is Plymouth Rock. It's where the pilgrims landed when they first came to the new land. This fall, it will be 403 years since the pilgrims landed in America. So let's just put what is happening here in Luke's gospel into perspective. It's like from the time of the pilgrims till now, God has not spoken, a miracle has not been done in the land. It was as God was coming and saying, I'm going to bring about the day of the Lord. I'm going to send someone to prepare it. And then nothing from the time of the pilgrims till today. Think about all that's happened in our nation's history. I don't know about you, but after a period of time, you might forget. After a period of time, you might begin to wonder, is God really going to fulfill the promise? Well, today, we look at Luke's gospel account, and we begin to see that God <clears throat> is bringing about the fulfillment of his promise. And it all starts here in verse 5. We looked at this extensively last week, at least just one verse, and it says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now listen, I talked about this just briefly last week. This verse is setting Luke in its historical context. It references Herod, because Herod was a real person in a real time and place, and I'm not going to go into all the history that we looked at last week, but when we're reading Luke's gospel, we're reading fact, we're not reading fiction. And then the next thing that he does is he tells us, he starts his gospel, not with a story about Jesus or Jesus' parents, but about this couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there's a beauty in this. As we're going to see in the story, we're going to understand why he starts with this couple, but their names themselves, Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers or God remembers. So, so, so it starts with this couple. The couple are Zechariah and the couple are Elizabeth. His name literally means God remembers. And so it's kind of teeing you in. I told you, it's been 400 years since the promise of Malachi. And so you and I would be reading this wondering, is God ever going to fulfill this promise? Is one ever going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah and the day of the Lord? 
And the first person's name that we read here in Jesus' story, Zechariah, is a name that says God remembers. So you should be reading this story anticipating God is going to remember. The name Elizabeth, we don't know exactly, it can mean a couple different things. Most think it means the God of my covenant. Well, God had made a covenant to, to Abraham. And so could it be that in, in having these two people be the first couple, God remembers and the God of my covenant, that what we're about to read should be turning our hearts to think, is God going to remember the covenant that he has made? And the answer, as we're about to see, is absolutely yes. But there's something very special about this couple. First, do you see who Zechariah was? The text tells us that he wasn't just any just regular person. He was a priest. It says that he was a priest. Now, church family, I want to just talk about the priesthood in Israel for a moment. These guys are going to come up a lot in the life of Jesus. Today, we're more familiar with pastors. <laughs> we're maybe more familiar with Catholic priests. But a Jewish priest, back in Jesus' day, they, they had a very, very important function. When God made his promise to Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to bring a deliverer through your offspring one day. They thought that that deliverer would come right away, but he didn't. In fact, God brought the Jewish people into Egypt, and then he rescued them out of Pharaoh's hand in Egypt. And he called them to be his people. And then he gave them his law. And he gave them a sacrificial system in which they could come and, and worship him. And that sacrificial system pointed them to how God would make provision for them. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But then God established the priesthood. He established this group of men who would descend from the line of Aaron, who would be from the line of Levi, who would ultimately be the ones who would officiate and watch over the religious life of the people in Israel. Not just anybody could offer sacrifices. Not just anybody could lead the people in worship. God identified a specific group of people through the tribe of Levi that they would be the ones who would be priests and they would have these specific duties. <clears throat> in fact, as you see here in your notes, I put a priest is someone who oversaw worship in the temple, sacrifices, taught God's word and represented the people to God and God to the people. And so not anybody could be a priest. It was a very special thing to be part of the priesthood. And only if you were part of one family could you do that. So what we know is that Zechariah is part of this family. Zechariah has been commissioned by God to serve this very, very important role. Now at the time the events of Luke are taking place, there is a temple in Jerusalem where God's people would come to worship. And if you were a Jew, no matter where you lived, there were like three big festivals, three big feasts that you were supposed to go to Jerusalem to participate in. And if you were a priest, you needed to be there those three times a year to help facilitate the festival and the feasts as they would take place. But here's the thing. Do you know how many priests there were in Israel at the time when Luke is writing this book? I'm just, I'm just curious. I know what none of you are going to do. Anybody want to take a guess how many priests there were in Israel? 100,000. Man, darn it. I hope you guys were going low. But you're close. 18,000 priests. 18,000 priests. Most people think that there were just maybe a few priests. No, there were 18,000 priests in Jesus' day. Why am I showing you this? Well, because there were so many priests. This is important to our story. All the priests needed to be there for the big festivals. But because there were so many priests, they didn't need that many priests offering sacrifices in the temple. Like, there would be room. 
So what did they do? They divided up the priesthood. And so if you were a priest, outside of these three main festivals, which went no more than about a week, you only had to come to the temple two other weeks out of the year to do your duty in the temple. So think about it. It's basically like five weeks out of the year you're actually kind of working. Uh, good deal, right? Not, not really. When they weren't working those five weeks there in Jerusalem, they were back in whatever village they lived in. So Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in a village and, and they would minister there. People knew that you were a priest. They were still responsible for instructing the people, but you better not as a priest offer any kind of offering in your village. The only place where you could come and make an offering and sacrifices were, were in Jerusalem. So this is who Zechariah is. He's a priest, he's got an important role, but don't think of him as an overly special priest. He wasn't a high priest. He didn't, as far as we know, have any real special duties that were assigned to him. The one thing we do about, know about him, and this is in your notes, is that he married up. He married up. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I say that he married up, Elizabeth, his wife, was a descendant of Aaron. Do you see that in the text? She was a descendant of Aaron. Aaron was the very first priest. He was Moses' brother. He was the one that God had established that through him and his line, the priesthood would, would come. And so here he is. He's from the line of Abijah, which isn't that big of a deal, but he married a daughter who could trace her descendancy all the way back to Aaron. And so, so the, the one thing that could have been special about him was the lineage. By joining with Elizabeth, they had this really special heritage. Now, I also think it was nice for him to have a wife who came from a family of priests because she knew what she was getting into. <laughs> she knew what was expected of him. And so this is Zechariah. This is, this is the couple. But now, outside of just knowing these facts and figures about them, the, the text actually talks to us about their relationship with God their relationship with God. Before we get into their story, look at what it says in verse six. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We don't just know about their lineage. We know about their character and their relationship with God. Church, we're gonna sit on this for a brief moment because this is huge. It helps us to understand our faith today, their faith back then, those phrases, look at how, does, how are they described? What was their relationship with God? It says that they were righteous and blameless. These two things, righteous and blameless, they're not the same thing. I want to show you, I want to draw you in that talking about them being righteous and talking about them being blameless is not the same thing, but these two things are tremendously connected, not just in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but they should be connected in our lives today. Let me show you what I mean. It says here in the text that they were righteous before who? God. To be righteous is to be right according to some standard. It's not just purely a religious term, although we use it in that way. If you are righteous, you are declared right according to some standard. Now, the question is, to what standard were Zechariah and Elizabeth <clears throat> considered right before? Well, the text tells us they were right before God. They were righteous before him. Some way, God declared them as being right before him. Do you all know what the problem is with that statement? To be right before God, you should be asking yourself a question. How could a couple back then be right before God? Because think about it. There is none righteous, no, not what? One. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how could this couple be declared right before God? Are you tracking with me? Were they sinless? Is that what it's saying? This text can't be saying that they were sinless. So how could somebody before the coming of Jesus Christ be right with God? How would you answer that question? Have you ever actually thought about the question, how were saints in the Old Testament saved? Was anybody saved in the Old Testament? Were they saved through obedience to God by performing sacrifices? Maybe they did good works back then. If you offered up the right sacrifices and went to all the feasts, that's what made you right with God. Is that what the Bible says? No, Uh, listen, this is huge, church. I'm I'm gonna show you how were they right with God. The answer is they were right before God in the same way that anyone today is right before God, and that was through faith, through faith. I want to show you this. The very first person that a promise was made to was, was Abraham. Before Jesus Christ, church, you were right with God through a forward-looking faith. The only way that somebody could stand before God rightly, for God to declare them right, for God to accept them, even though they were a sinner, was through a forward-looking faith. That is, looking to what God had promised and trusting in what God had promised. We see this example when it comes to Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, Moses writes of Abraham and says, then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him or was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Abraham believed the promise of God and that was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham looked to what God said he would do and God said, I trust in your word. Now, here's what we know about the faith of Abraham and anyone's faith. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the what? Gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one could boast. So even Abraham and his ability to believe in the promise of God was because God had granted him the gift of faith. In fact, Jesus would say this about Abraham. In John 8, 56, this is in your notes, you could write this down. When Jesus was preaching, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What's what's Jesus saying there? God had consistently made promises to the people of the Old Testament saying, I will send a deliverer. I will bring forth one who will save you from your sins. The book of Isaiah, just just consider this. This is Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me. This is Old Testament. With the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Listen, in the Old Testament, as it is for us, there was this forward-looking faith trusting that God would impute, he would, he would give to us his righteousness, that he would provide a way for the sinner to be made clean. And so when it says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God. What that is telling us in shorthand is that you're dealing with a couple who knew and believed in God's promise to bring about salvation and they trusted in that promise and not their own works. Amen. And so that's what you have. They had this forward-looking faith. 
What about us today? They were looking forward to the promise of God being fulfilled. Today, we have a backwards-looking faith. That's the last part of that statement. They had a forward-looking, to be right with God, you had to have a forward-looking faith. Today, we have a backward-looking faith. We look back to the completed work of Jesus Christ. So when you and I come to a passage, you know, like Galatians 2.20, we, we say, we've put our faith not in our works, but in, but in Christ and what he has done for us. They had this forward, that's what it's telling us. They were looking forward to God's promise being fulfilled. You and I look backwards to the promise of God having been fulfilled in Jesus. Are, are you following with me? This is how, God didn't change his plan, church. God didn't midstream be like, okay, I'm gonna save people in the Old Testament by doing a bunch of works. And then in the New Testament, I'm gonna save people by them just looking to Jesus. No, all the works of the Old Testament, all the sacrifices, everything that Zechariah did every single day when he went into the temple were to say, listen, these sacrifices are incomplete. They're not enough, but they're pointing us to a sacrifice who will come. They're pointing us to one who will cleanse us with his blood. That's what we were singing about this morning. And so this is what this couple believed. And then it says, do you see the second part of the statement? They weren't just righteous before God, they were blameless. Church, what we're dealing with here, when it says that they were righteous before God, we're talking about justification. And when it says that they were blameless before God, we're talking about sanctification. That's what these two things are being talked about right here. We're talking about justification. We're talking about sanctification. They walked in obedience to the commandments of God because they knew that as God's people, if you've put your faith and trust in him and in his promise, then he calls you to walk in his ways. And so we don't walk in his ways in order to earn our righteousness, we walk in his ways because it is a display of the righteousness that we believe we have in him. We looked at this in the book of Ephesians. God didn't change his plans. When he saves you in Jesus Christ, when we believe that he's redeemed us, we say, oh, well, this is what it looks like to walk as God's people. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they obeyed the Old Testament law because they said, as God's people looking forward to the fulfillment of his promise, we believe that this is how we should live. This is a godly couple. They had a right relationship with God. Justified before him, and they understood that to be the people of God, we walk in obedience to him. Are you tracking with me? This is, this is who this couple ultimately are. And this is all important because of what happens next. Look at what happens next. Verse seven says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. That's a nice way of saying they're old. <laughs> this is an old couple, righteous and blameless before God. They, they're walking in obedience to him, but they can't have any children. This is the problem. See, right here, we're told about their problem. They had no children. This was a problem back then. Do you know why? Because God's word says, like Psalm 127, that says that children are a blessing from the Lord. For the parents here today, you're like, sometimes, um, <clears throat> right? But they were a blessing from the Lord. God said, if you had a big family, that was, that was an illustration of, of God's blessing and favor upon you. But for this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, it said that they had what? No children. And if you were an outsider looking in at this couple and you saw that they had no children, you know what you'd think about them? Something's wrong. They're disobedient in some way. They're, they're not doing something that they should be doing. Yet what has the text just told us? They were what? Righteous and blameless. In the eyes of God, there was nothing wrong with this family. And yet from the eyes of the world, they'd be like, well, you don't have children, so what did you do? What aren't you doing? 
There's something wrong with, with them. And here's why I want to just share something with it. Just this text right here by itself, I want us to consider something. Just a brief takeaway. Church, be careful to assign meaning to difficult circumstances, either your own or others. When you hear about a couple that was righteous and blameless before God, yet culturally not having children was a sign that something was wrong with you, people from the outside looking in could say they might appear righteous, they might appear blameless, but they had, there's something deeper going on. This verse offers a warning to us as believers to say, be careful to assign meaning to difficult circumstances, either yours or others, because you really don't know what God's doing. Can I get an amen to that? We are so quick to judge often so quick to judge or to think we know more, that there's something wrong with somebody. Yet this couple, what we know, was fully acceptable and right before God, and yet they, there was a difficulty and a difficult circumstance in their life. And so maybe a difficulty or circumstance is happening in your life. Be slow to assign meaning to it. Be slow to say, oh, this is God is judging me, God is teaching me, God is doing whatever. Be very slow to assign meaning to difficult circumstances. You know who knows why the thing is happening in your life that's happening? Guess who knows? God. You know who doesn't often know why it's happening? Us. The majority of the time we will never even know. Maybe this side of heaven we won't even know why some difficulty came. But take, take great peace and comfort in saying, listen, it doesn't always mean when I have a difficulty or a struggle in my life that I'm doing something wrong or God is judging me or punishing me because look at Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children for the, for the extent of the majority of their lives. They lived in this world where the culture was saying something might be wrong with you when in reality, there was nothing wrong. There was nothing wrong. But God was doing that because he had a reason for all that. Let's get to it. Are you ready? Here we go. <clears throat> Verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. All right, this probably doesn't mean much to you, but this meant everything to Zechariah. Let me, let me explain to you what's going on. I'm going to show you some pictures, okay? Here, here's a picture of the temple. I want to show you this first picture of the temple. This structure at the time of Jesus, you could see it from anywhere as you came towards Jerusalem. It was large. Right there in the middle, you have the temple. You see where it says number one? That was the, the holy place. Now, if you were uh, a Gentile, you could go to that outside court. If you were a woman, you could get into the court that was number nine. You see there right, right in the middle. Now, men could get in where you see numbers two, three, and four are. But only certain priests could get into number one, into the holy place. And even the holy place was divided itself. In fact, let's look at the next picture. Let's see, I think that shows it a little bit more clear. Yeah, there we go. So, okay, ladies, you can get into the courtyard, but you can't get into where it says the priest's courtyard is. And that's where the altar was. So ladies, back then, you could only just like peek in to look at where the sacrifice were taking place. The guys could see it. And then the priests, <coughs> well, they could get into the holy place. But do you see the number three there? There's kind of like a, a little dividing wall thing. There, behind that curtain was the, the Holy of Holies, the place where the presence of God was said to dwell. Now, priests could go into where number four and five is, but only one priest could go into the most holy place, and that was only once a year. Now, what Zechariah got selected to do was, he got selected to not just to go where the altar was, but he got to go in 
to the place where you could burn incense right outside the holy place. This is where four and five are. They would offer up these, these burnt incense every morning and every evening. And you could be selected once in your life to go and have the experience to do that. It was the closest that anyone outside of the high priest could get to the presence of God. So only if you were a priest and once in your lifetime, maybe, out of the 18,000, maybe you could get chosen to go into that special place right outside the curtain and offer up incense to the Lord. If you were, this was like, I, I don't even, I don't even, I, I, it's hard to compare this. In fact, if you were a priest, you'd never even, if you were one of the 18,000 and you'd never been selected, you'd never even been inside the holy place. So you would be asked to, to perform a task inside the holy place without even knowing exactly what it looked like fully to be. You'd never been in there. All right, so you're going to go in, you're going to burn the incense, and you're going to come out, okay? Like, all right, all right. Because you got the, it's like right behind that curtain is supposed to be the, where, where the presence of God would dwell. In fact, when the high priest went in to the most holy place once a year, they would tie a rope around his waist and he'd wear bells on him in case when he went into the most holy place, God struck him dead. And then they would drag him out. Okay? Like, this is real. This is what... So this is Zechariah. He's chosen to go. And <laughs> look what happens. Look what happens. He goes in. It's most likely um, nighttime because there's a big multitude there, so kind of the end of the day. And he goes into this most holy place and it says, or into the holy place, to the altar where he's going to burn incense, it says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Okay, so he gets to, he's excited. I'm going in, he's opening the doors. First time that he's going in to actually see the altar of incense. And then the doors close behind him. So he's just, he's just in there. And that in and of itself would just been a moment where he, see, he actually sees the curtain and he's like, beyond that is the Ark of the Covenant. Oh my goodness, what would this be like? And, and so he's in there and he sees the altar of incense. The emotions that he would have been experiencing just right then would have been overwhelming. And if that weren't enough, what happens? An angel appears to him. There hasn't been an angel, a messenger of God for 400 years from the time of the pilgrims till now in Israel's history, right? Are you tracking with me? There's been nothing spectacular like this that has taken place. And so he sees this angel and fear falls upon him. He's not expecting it, so I'm sure he was shocked. One time when I was in Bible college, there was this little chapel on one of the floors of the dorm where we stayed. And so I went into this chapel with my brother and a friend. We were doing a Bible study. And it was dark in there, and there was just a light in one corner. And so we went over by the light, and we're quietly doing our Bible study. And, and we, you know, sharing our hearts with one another. <clears throat> and we're the only ones we thought were in there. At the very end of our Bible study, all of a sudden, a girl pops up off the ground and walks out of the room. We're like, what? I mean, we, we, we were just like, we, we jumped. We were just like, is this a, we're entertaining angels unaware. No, she was just, she had been laying, you know, just there on the ground, just worshiping God in silence and listening to all of our deep, dark secrets, the stinker, you know? I, I think of that story every time I think about this. You're coming in to do something and, you know, somber and everything, and boom, an angel appears. So he's afraid 
And I think angels are used to this experience because look at verse 13, he says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Okay, thanks. Okay, I'm gonna try not to be afraid. But why? For your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name what? John. Man, before he can get too worked up, he immediately offers these words of comfort. He says, your prayer has been heard. Now, as a priest, when you go into the altar of incense, you're actually, when you're burning the incense, that represents the prayers of the people rising up to God. And there's no doubt that Zechariah had been praying for the people of Israel, but that's not what the angel's talking about here. He's talking about a very specific prayer. Obviously, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for what? A son. Been praying for a son. And he says, you're going to get that. God's heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. And so that brings us to the promise. You're, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son, Zechariah, even in your old age. And who's going to bear it? Elizabeth. But then look at what the angel says about this son. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the spirit even from his mother's womb. Now I'm gonna stop there. I'm gonna make a couple of observations. The first thing that we learn about this son is that he's a son with a purpose and significance. Do you see what the text says? You're going to have joy and gladness, right? Them, for them personally, just having a son is going to be the fulfillment of something they've longed for. Just, just to have a child, to have a baby in a home. For those of us who have, have had that experience, we know the blessing that it can be. So, so there's going to be joy and gladness. And, and many are going to rejoice at his birth. You're going to rejoice. Others are going to rejoice. But verse 15 says, he's going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be great before the Lord because we're going to see he's going to have a purpose and he's going to have significance. But one of the things that the text goes on to say is that he's going to be set apart for God. He's going to have purpose. He's going to have significance, but he's going to be set apart for God. We know this because he must not drink strong wine <clears throat> or drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This is huge. There's this Nazarite vow. I'm not going to get into it fullness. We'll talk about it later. But this idea of not drinking wine is that he's going to be set apart from the Lord. Everybody in that culture drank wine. Everybody had strong drink. It was just part of what you, you did. You didn't drink to get drunk. You drank because it was probably the safest thing for you to drink. <clears throat> and so by him not drinking, it would have been very obvious in that culture, oh, you're not drinking wine. And in that culture, you knew as a Jew, if you saw somebody who wouldn't drink wine, you knew that that was because they had set themselves apart for the Lord for some specific thing. So from his birth, from his youth, he wouldn't be doing the things that others would do because he was set apart to God. But he says, there's gonna be even more than that. He's literally gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's gonna be a son empowered by God for ministry. The idea that from his birth, God would indwell him. See, we're so familiar with the idea of the Holy Spirit that when you believe in Jesus Christ, he, he gives you his spirit to indwell you. That didn't happen back then. You just didn't get the Holy Spirit. For God, to, the only place that God indwelt was, was there at the most holy place in the temple. That's where his presence dwelt. And so what he's saying is like some of those select saints of the Old Testament, the angel says, God's spirit will reside upon your son in a unique way. 
and he will reside upon your son and in your son because your son will have a ministry for God. And what is that ministry? Well, here's what would have blown Zechariah's socks off. Look at it. It should sound familiar if you've been paying attention from the very beginning, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you know what he's quoting from there? He's drawing him back to Malachi. The very last word spoken in the Old Testament, he says, Zechariah, your son John is the fulfillment of the promise. He's the one to come that Malachi had talked about. What you've been waiting for, Amazon has sent you the notification. The package is now on its way and your son is the one who's preparing the people for his coming. This would have been the words that any Israelite, any Jew had longed to hear. Finally, the way is being prepared for the day of the Lord. The angel is delivering this to Zechariah. My son, this child will be the one to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. The excitement that that should cause, the, the, the relief the wait is over, the angel is saying, and it's gonna be your boy that's gonna do it. Now look at the responses. Look at Zechariah's response to this. I would expect him to say, this is incredible, we're unworthy, but, but thank you. His response, verse 18 is, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What? That's your response to an angel telling you that your son is going to be the one to prepare the way for the Messiah's coming. His very first response is that of doubt. The response of Zechariah is that he doubted. He doubted. Now, looking back on this in hindsight, we can have that response. We can be like, Zechariah, seriously? But let's put ourselves in Zechariah's shoes. I like what Pastor John was telling me this week. We were talking about this story. He said, you know, Dave, when I, when I see angels appearing in the Old Testament and the New Testament, two things happen. People usually are afraid and people usually get stupid. And I'm like, that's, that sounds, <clears throat> that's about right. And maybe it's because of the fear. He's trying to take it all in. Right. Zechariah, he doubts what the angel says. And look at how the angel responds to his doubt. The angel knows fully what's going on. Now, listen to me. What I'm about to read to you here is not going to fall on you like the way it did Zechariah, but I hope when I'm done explaining it, it will. The angel answered him. How will this be, he basically says. How can I know this is going to happen? We're old. My wife is old. This doesn't take place. Here's what the angel says. He says, Zechariah, I am who? Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Zechariah is asking for a sign. He said, how will I know this is gonna be true? And the very first thing he says is, well, let me introduce myself. I am Gabriel. And at those words, I have no doubt, 
shivers went down Zechariah's entire body because he was a priest to God. He knew the word of God. And there are only two angels whose names are recorded in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. And Gabriel is the one who in the book of Daniel, which Zechariah would have known, was sent by God to speak to the great prophet Daniel to explain the visions that Daniel had seen. So the moment that he says, I am Gabriel, he knows he is talking to a being who has existed long before him and was the very being who was sent by God to speak to the prophet Daniel. And I think immediately Zechariah was like, oh, I get it now. And then Gabriel's like, and just, just so we're clear on the fact that I'm, I'm that Gabriel, he says, I stand in the presence of who? God. Do you know where I just came from? Like, I'm here right now. I left the presence of God to come and talk to you, okay? I left the presence of God because he sent me to you. I left the presence of God because I am here to proclaim, what does he say? Good news to you. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And now, what we see in Gabriel is that he rebuked Zechariah with this, but then he comes and he reaffirms the promise with a sign. Verse 20 says, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things took place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Which will be fulfilled in their time. Gabriel comes and he says, listen, it should be enough that I'm standing before you telling you these things. It should be enough that I'm Gabriel who came for the presence of God. But yeah, just to give you the sign you asked for, you're gonna be silent. You're not going to be able to speak until the boy is born. I don't know that they probably hit on Zechariah the fullness of what that would mean for him. But look what happens next. I always wondered why, why did he give him the sign of silence? Why did he make him silent? I thought it was maybe to help Elizabeth through her pregnancy so he didn't say anything stupid the entire time, right? You know? But no, there's actually a theological reason. And it actually... If you understand the Jewish faith and what they were doing, it makes sense. Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Normally you just go in, you light the thing and you come on out and like, uh, what's taking so long? Verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Now, do you know why the people were waiting for him to come out? The priests would go in, they would light the incense, and when they came out, the priests would stand on those temple steps and they would do something to let the people know that the prayers had been lifted up to God as the incense went up. Every priest would come out of the temple and speak to the people the words of Numbers 6.24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then the crowds would disperse. But what happens? The priest comes out of the temple and he stands before the people. They're all looking at him like you're all looking at me. And he doesn't give them the blessing. He can't bless them. He can't say the words. 
Why did God take Zechariah's ability to speak? I believe that it was for this moment. That's why the people immediately knew. I mean, to be a priest and to not speak the blessing, that was, that was like anathema. How can you not be doing it? He took away his ability to speak so that the, that's why the people immediately knew he had seen a vision. Something spectacular had happened is because he couldn't give them the blessing. He couldn't speak this over, over them. And then what's crazy to me is verse 23 says, he tries to make signs to them, but verse 23 says, and when his time of service was ended, then he went home. Think about this. He could, didn't get to go to Elizabeth right away. He had to finish his week of service in the temple. He finally goes home, and when he goes home, God does what he says that he would do. He fulfills the promise to Zechariah. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth, what? Conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. We get a sense here in the closing that Elizabeth really felt. She, she really, she had experienced great loss and grief because of her inability to bear children. But what does God do? It says that he answers the prayer. He fulfills this promise that he made to Zechariah. He said, Zechariah, I'm gonna give you a son. And then what does God do? She conceives. We're gonna eventually learn about John. We're gonna hear some more about him. But but in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth Church, there's this microcosm, there's this, there's this little story happening that is showing us a greater story. God had promised the people of Israel that he would send a redeemer. And for 400 years, there was silence and the redeemer had not come. The takeaway from this story and what he does to Zechariah and Elizabeth and the interaction with the angel is this. What God promises, church, he will do. He will do when he offered and he said, I will send forth one who will rescue my people. He did just that. When God speaks, his words are true. What he promises, he will do. Now for them back then, they were looking forward to Messiah. Today, we look back and we say, can God fulfill his promises? The coming of Jesus Christ for us is the answer that yes, he fulfills his promise. My question for us is a simple one today. And it's very simply this. Will we be a people who take God at his word? Will we be a people who take God at his word? When an angel stood before Zechariah and said, God's gonna do the thing through you that he promised way back that he would do, Zechariah looked at his circumstances and he said, God, I don't know if that's possible. Give me a sign. Did he take God at his word? No. My question for us today is, the sign and the fulfillment of the promises come and his name is Jesus. And he says that he has forgiven us of our sins and he has made us new creations and he has restored us in relationship with God. My question to you is, how will you live in light of God's fulfilled promise? My prayer for us is that we would not be like Zechariah in that moment that questioned whether or not God can do the things he's promised to do. But when he says to us today that through Christ our sins are forgiven, that we will believe that those sins are forgiven. When he says that I have given you the, my spirit's power so that you might live in righteousness, that we would believe that that is true. When he says I will never leave you nor forsake you, that that promise is true for us today. My prayer, church, 
is that when we look at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the coming of John, that when we see that when God promises something, he will do it, that we live as though that were true. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good beyond words. I think about Zechariah and Elizabeth. I think about the people in their day that, Lord, they were just, they were looking forward to what you would do and the promises you would be fulfilling in and through Jesus. Today, we have no question. We know that you are a God who sent your one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh Lord, if there's any in this room today who have not believed by faith in that promise, that they would be moved from death to life today by coming to Jesus and trusting in him. But Lord, that's not the end of that promise that you have fulfilled in Jesus. You said that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life, everlasting life. Lord, help us to live today and to believe that that promise is true, that in Christ, we enter into new creation today. We have the power of the spirit today, that we have holiness and righteousness today in Christ that we can walk in. Help us to not be a people who would but doubt, but instead trust. Because Lord, you have shown yourself through your son, whose life and death we're gonna celebrate in just a minute at the Lord's table as completely sufficient and as the one who is the fulfillment of all your promises. And so it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen.